The title of the message is The Perfect Prayer and the Coming King. Before we get there, J.D. Greer writes this devotional. Michael shared this with me earlier this week, and so I read through this devotion, and it says, this is what J.D. Greer says. He says, the Bible is a book full of promises, and there are an estimated 3,000 of them. Yes, I realize that some of them apply to specific and unique situations, as with God's promise to Jacob, the blessing, but I also know that Paul calls all the promises of God, yes, in Christ. So in Christ-centered way, Every one of them is yes for me and for you. And then he goes on to say that I don't want you just to read through the Bible. I want you to pray through the Bible. I want you to pray the Scriptures. That that's our promises. That's the truth that God gave to us. And so when we pray, when we think about our kids, that we pray Psalm 127.4, right? That our children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. That we grow, that we pray. That God, give me and give my wife the strength to raise up our children in a way that they love you and serve you, that they are mighty warriors for your kingdom. We pray for that. We claim that promise and that truth. And so when we feel like we have no idea how to parent, right? Who's been there? I think all of us, when we're struggling with this idea of how to parent, that we lean to God, that we lean to his word, that his truth, and he will teach us how to raise our children up as mighty warriors for good, for his good. And so the question is, what promise, what promises have been left unclaimed in your family? And so I'm reading through this devotion, and he puts a link in here, and he says this, in 2005, 5.8 billion, billion, not million, 5.8 billion dollars were left unclaimed on gift cards. 2005, and it's been trending the same. And so from 2005 to current day, we've left over $81 billion on gift cards. Wow, right? Where are they at? Send them my house, right? Put the address on there. Send them on over. $81 billion has been left unclaimed, and these are benefits that have already been purchased, right? benefits that have already been purchased and given to J.D. Greer goes on to say, in light of that, in light of these gift cards, in light of these promises, these are the truth that God has already promised to you and me. They're in the Bible, yet we're not laying claim to them. We're letting them go to waste. It's unfortunate, because guess what? They've already been purchased by the blood of Christ. You have full accessibility to want to claim them. Don't leave them unclaimed. Hold true to the promises you have in Scripture. And so the main idea as we look at Daniel 9 is this, that God in his sovereignty accomplishes his plan through the prayer, the prayer of his people. I know what you're thinking, some of you. There's some tension here. There's a little bit of tension when we read this, when we read this, but hold on because it's a good tension. The tension between God's plan, his sovereignty, and yet our responsibility as believers to pray, to pray for the will of God to be done in our life. That's a healthy tension. You cannot figure it out. I cannot figure it out. You will never figure it out. What you need to do, what I need to do, is hold true to the promise 
that God is faithful, that he is sovereign, that he's in control, no matter whether I can figure it out or not in my finite mind, that God is in control, yet I have a responsibility to fall at his feet, worship him, pray to him, give him thanks, and ask for the promises of Scripture to come true in my life. That is our responsibility. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know how that works it out. But we see that in the life of Daniel as he prays, as he's a man committed to prayer and seeking the Father. And so our key verse, as we move through this, keep that in mind, our key verse is verse 24, and we'll come back to it, but the key verse in this passage is, it says, 70 weeks are declared about your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to put to an end sin, and to atone for iniquities, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. We'll come back to that verse. We're going to walk through this. But, but before I continue, I want to clarify something about the title of the message. I know messages can get you in trouble, especially the title of them. <clears throat> the title is, is that it's the perfect prayer in the coming of the king. And so what I want to say here is that the perfect prayer does not allude to this model by which we pray. Right? We've seen that already. We've seen that in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus laid that out for us the model of prayer. And so what I mean by the perfect prayer, when Daniel prays, it's not a model for Christians to pray this way, but there are unique prayers in specific situations where we're asking God to show himself to us, his children, that this is principles that we can build on in our prayer life. It's the perfect way to look at prayer, to approach God and his throne. And so that's where we're looking at with Daniel as we move through his prayer. So it's not a model but it's a, there's principles that we can build it on. There's four key principles as we move through this to build on one another in chapter 9. And so we'll, we'll start in verse 1. And our first point is this. Perfect prayer is inspired by the Scripture. Perfect prayer is inspired by the Scripture. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And so in the first year of Darius was the, was the year 539 B.C. This was the year of the great Babylon Empire where it collapsed. Daniel witnessed this. He witnessed the fall of the Babylon Empire, and this this really caused him to look at the scripture, right? To remember what he read. He even says in verse 2, he says, according to the word of the Lord in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, it says this. It says in verse 11, or chapter 25 of Jeremiah, verse 11, it says, the whole land shall become a ruin, a ruin and waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declared the Lord, making the land an everlasting So Daniel would have knew this because he sought God out. He loved God's word. He wasn't a perfect man, but he loved the word of God. And he sought the will of God through his scripture. And because he knew this, he would have also known that at the end of the seven years were up, it wasn't like this automatic return to the promised land for the, for the Israelites. It wasn't like, oh, here you go, seven years is up, and now you're, you're back in, right? He would have known Leviticus, and Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40 says this. Listen, it says, But if they confess their iniquities 
in the iniquities of their fathers, in their treachery that they, <clears throat> that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their circumcised, uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquities, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and I will remember my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So Daniel knew this. And as we move through his prayer, we're going to see his confession. We're going to see his heart. But first, we know that the Scripture, we know that the Word of God, we can lay hold to the promises and pray with confidence, knowing, knowing our prayer is inspired by the Scripture. When our prayer is inspired by the Scripture, church, have confidence in that. Lay hold of that. And what that does, it builds on our second point. The second point is this. Perfect prayer ushers us into the presence of God. It ushers us in, church. I don't know if you've done that. I don't do it enough. I'll, I'll admit it to you. But I don't pray through Scripture as much as I ought. When you do, when you sit down, you pray through the Scriptures, and you allow the, the Word of God to lead you, you find yourself sitting in the presence of God. And it's a different viewpoint. Look at what Daniel does. Verse 3 and 4. It says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting with sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Verse 3 is Daniel's penance or his way of atonement. And we see it says he's fasting, he's wearing sackcloth, and he's sprinkling his head with these ashes. This was an Old Testament way of repentance, of mourning for his sins. And then we see in verse 4, it says, Daniel shows his adoration for God. Let's see what he says in verse 4. He says, Oh Lord, oh Lord, you are the owner of the universe. He says, great and awesome. Great and awesome. Beyond all our imagination, you are good. You are great. Because you keep your covenant. You're always faithful. You're always true. And he goes on to say, a steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It's an unwavering love, church. Unwavering to those who love him and obey him. And he prays. Then the prayer is inspired. And so, I'm sorry, we see that his prayer is inspired by the scriptures, right? We see that. He knows the scriptures. He's inspired by the scriptures. And then he moves. It's kind of ushering into the presence of God. And he says, you're so good. You're so mighty. You're wonderful. You're steadfast. You are more than enough. You're all that I want. Which leads us to this question. Do our prayers make God look like a genie who grants wishes upon our commands? Or their adoration? Do our prayers have a deep love and respect for the God of creation? Self-motivated? Do we admire, do we admonish, do we give adoration and respect to the God of the universe? All that he is in our prayer? Do we immediately jump to the Lord? Lord, I need this. Do this for me. And I'll do this for you. 
Remember, each principle and the perfect prayer builds on one another. So when we find ourselves in the presence of God, the next principle is real honesty and confession. Real honesty and confession. So the perfect prayer, point three, is this. Perfect prayer must be honest and full of confession. Verse 5 through 14. Now this is a lengthy confession. But just listen to the heart of a man who knows the word of God, who is sitting in the presence of God. He's honest. His heart is honest and full of confession. He says this in verse 5. It says, We have sinned and have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servant and prophets who spoke your name to the king, your princes and your fathers, to, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, bring belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. At this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are here or who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which we have driven them because of their treachery or their unfaithfulness, that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord your God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against you and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or God by walking in his laws, which have been set before us by his servants and the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath are written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his word, which is spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all the calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from the iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. So these verses are an, are an expression of Daniel's repentance and confession of sin for himself and his fellow workers, his fellow men of faith, who were in exile with him. So Daniel minimizes neither his sin nor the sin of his fellow Jews. He uses a wide variety. If we look at Scripture, he uses a wide variety of expressions in the Scripture for sin. And he says this in verse 5. Daniel says that, that we have sinned, that we have committed iniquities, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, and we've turned aside from God's commandment and ordinance. Verse 6, he adds, we have not listened to the prophets. In verse 7, he says, Daniel refers to Israel as unfaithful deeds. Israel's bondage in Babylon is because of the consequence of sin. So the word of God, spoken by the prophets and recorded in the Holy Scriptures, is the standard to by which Daniel's sins and those of his fellow Israelites are identified. He's identifying what they have done wrong. He's repenting. He's confessing. He's being honest. So just as many terms that were employed to describe Israel's sin, many different terms are used to refer to the divine revelation. Listen to this. God, he says, God gave Israel, in verse 4, his commandments. He gave them his commandments. And in verse 5, it says he gave them their commandments and their ordinances. 
verse 6, it said he spoke through the prophets. Verse 10, his teaching. Verse 11 says the law. Verse 13, the law of Moses. And then verse 13 again, God revealed his son. God wants his people to know him, to know his truths. Even though they've turned away, committed sin. So the truth of the scripture is really, really driven by Daniel's confession. That's what's driving him to confess because he knows the word of God. He understands that they are in exile because of it. So Daniel's confession of sin is precisely what is required of Israel in order to be forgiven and restored. So remember Daniel knowing the promise we read in Leviticus. It said, if we confess their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers in in their unfaithfulness or their treachery that they committed against me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. Remember Confess our sins, church. Be honest with him. He wants you to come before him as his people. And you as his children and confess. Give him thanks. Give him adoration. Confess. And ask. And so we come to the next principle when we look at the prayer. As it continues to build. When our prayers are honest and full of confession. Our requests are rooted in God's will. That our request, the perfect prayer, moves us to request rooted in God's will. We see this in 15 through 19. Listen to Daniel's heart, and he says this in verse 15. And now, O Lord, your God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, have made a name for yourself. As it as it as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Verse 16, O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger, your wrath, turn away from the city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of your sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleads for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation. And the city that is called by your name, for we do not present our plea before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called Daniel's prayer in verse 16 through 19, or really 15 through 19, moves us from confession to this penance, to this supplication, right? This, this asking, this request, according to God's promises in Scripture. It was a God-centered request, not man-centered. Often our confession really focuses on, on our sins, while Daniel really focused on Righteousness of God. See that? Did you hear that in there? Go back and read it if you didn't throughout the week. Our, our, our prayers often focus so much on who we are, we forget to focus on how good God is, how righteous He is. Not only that, we focus on our needs. And if we look at the scripture, what did Daniel focus on? 
purpose, glory. Not his own glory. Not his own safety. Not his own comfort. Lord, I want your glory. Whatever it can. I want your purpose to go forth. Your glory. So Daniel's requests are made in accordance with God's character. But God's character, his righteousness, his goodness. Daniel's request for God to act is not in his best interest, but in God's. There's an alarming tendency that exists in the Christian circles of thinking, of thinking God as being there for them. We listen to a lot of our Christian music too. We see that, we hear that in the music, like God is there for me. But the fact is that we are here for Him. We are here for Him. He is using all of creation, all of mankind for His glory. Romans 8, using all of this for His glory. Daniel's request for grace, mercy, and compassion. He knows his God. He knows his Father. So, we come to verse 20, and we get the answer. We get the answer that Daniel is seeking. And it's a little tricky here, and we're going to walk through it slow, because he's not really answering Daniel here in chapter 9. He's really answering chapter 8. So we'll get into that, and let me read this. In verse 20, it says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sins and the sins of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for your holy heal of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at first, came to me in swift flight and at a time of, of this evening's sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your plea for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And so Gabriel's appearance interrupted Daniel, who was praying, right? We knew Daniel to be a man of prayer. We even knew that he didn't shut his window. It wasn't in response to, like, he just was a man of prayer. He didn't want to, he didn't want to hide himself. It was something that he's always done. He always prayed, and then it, it led him to be thrown into the lion's den and almost be killed, right? But God had his hand of protection on him. And so this is not out of character. Daniel is praying, and Gabriel interrupts, and he says this. Gabriel appears and announces that he has an answer for Daniel's prayer. And there's a clear link here between Daniel's prayer and Gabriel's prophetic announcement. More than this, I believe that is very clear. If we look at chapter 9, it's very clear that if we, there's no vision in chapter 9, right? If we just read through there, there's no vision. There's nothing that Gabriel's answering in chapter 9. But if we look to the end of chapter 8, the focus was is that Daniel, what? He didn't understand. It wasn't clear to him. As a matter of fact, it says in Daniel 8, 27, it says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astonished astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. And so Daniel was still confused. And so the focus here, the answer here, is really the vision between, on chapter 8, 
Gabriel comes 12 years later, church, right? 12 years later, Daniel's still praying and seeking the will of God. And 12 years later, he gets an answer. What a man committed to prayer. What a man committed to the Lord and the word of God. Even when he was confused and did not understand, he continued to seek God and to pray. And so Gabriel appears here in chapter 9. And it's a number of years later. And we see that Gabriel's second appearance to Daniel came after the death of Belshazzar in chapter 5. And the first year in the reign of Darius, Gabriel first appeared to Daniel, came to an actual vision with Gabriel standing near to Daniel. And during his second appearance, Gabriel did not come as part of any vision, but he informed Daniel. And he instructed him to give insight with understanding in verse 22. We just see that. So that he could gain understanding in verse 23 of the vision. What vision? The vision that we talked about in in chapter 8 is now coming uh, to Daniel in chapter 9, 12 years later. And so Daniel told... uh, So Daniel told us that he did not understand in in chapter 8, but now he will. Look at verse 24. As we read it. I don't know if my notes got messed up. Verse 24. This is the coming of the king. It says this, Seventy weeks are declared about your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to put to an end sin, and to atone for iniquities, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. And so now in light of the end of this 70 years of captivity, right, Daniel would have known that. He knew that the empire was overthrown, and so he's seeking the scripture. And we're told three times in chapter 8 that the vision pertained to the end times, right? Chapter 8, verse uh, 17, 19, and 26. And then the return of the captive Jews of their own land was not part of the events of the end time, but the return, the restoration of Israel was not the beginning of the kingdom of God. And so Daniel focuses on this vision to show that the events of the near future were not viewed of the beginning of the end. But Daniel's attention was fixed on the period of 70 years which came to the end to overthrow the Babylonian Empire. So Gabriel speaks not of these 70 years, but of these 70 weeks. Would Daniel and others think that it was 70 years wait to the promised kingdom? So really it was 70 times 7, which comes out to 490 years, must pass before the promise pertaining to the kingdom were fulfilled. Then no one would be confused by Israel's soon return to the land. And so there's a lot going on here with these years. But before the kingdom of God could come to earth, there must be a solution in the great dilemma of sin. And this is what he's given the vision, that there's going to be a solution to the, the sin of the world, to the sin of the Israelites, to the sin of us. And so in verse 40, 24, that's where Gabriel informs Daniel that these 70 weeks have been decreed to finish. It says in verse 24, to finish the transgressions and to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquities and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And so his prayer recorded in verse 4 through 19, Daniel confessed his sins to the people. He says, we are sinful. But his confession did not remove the sin or produce 
a righteousness that was required for men to live eternally, right? We're still waiting on the coming of the king. And so Gabriel let Daniel know that after the passing of the 490 years, that the spiritual foundation of the kingdom of God would be laid. And the foundation was the removal of sin and the provision of everlasting righteousness. And verse 25 says this, Now, therefore, they understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, the prince, that there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats and in troubled times. But after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince, the Antichrist, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war, desolation, and decree. Desolations are decree. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offerings. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolation until the decree ends is poured out on the desolator. And so verse 25 through 27 introduces really two main players and two events that bring about the end of sin of human mankind and bring everlasting righteousness to the kingdom of God. So I'm going to run through some facts here. I really want you to think. Now, this vision, there's a lot going on here in the answer to this vision in chapter 8. And so it's going to seem wordy, but I'm going to try to read through it. And I'm going to throw numbers out there, and we're going to try to connect the God. So bear with me, right? Bear with me. This is uh, actually a lot of commentators say that this is one of the, the toughest passages to teach in Daniel 9. And so I really want to focus in on the facts so that you guys understand what's going on here. So it says, after... 483 years, this is where we get the 62 weeks plus the 7 weeks, the city of Jerusalem is the temple would be rebuilt, not with ease, but in times of distress. We read that in scripture. It's not going to be easy for them, but they're going to rebuild the city. And at this time, the promised Messiah will be cut off. We see that in verse 6. It says he will be cut off and apparently left with nothing. And so when they perceive that the king, the Messiah, the coming king is cut off, they think, we lost again, right? They almost feel like they failed. And another, priest, another prince will arise, the counterpart to the Messiah. And so the prince, while he's cut off and he has ascended to his throne in the kingdom, another prince will come to the people and he will appeal to their weakness. And he will fool them and he will trick them. And the holy city and the sanctuary, the temple, will be destroyed by that prince. And the holy place seems to come to much end and like, it, it, like the Messiah is done. And then we see here in verse 26, it says, Like a flood, the destruction and desolation of the city and the temple come upon it. And there's a time of war and desolation. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. In verse 27, it says, The prince then makes a firm covenant with the masses for a week. For seven years, he pleads to the people and says, Look, I have the answers. Come, follow me. And then the covenant seems to be put, put men at ease, right? It seems like the world is falling for his trickery. And then it says, I love the end of the scripture. It says, the prince comes and on the wings of abomination makes everything he comes into contact with 
desolate. He destroys it. He removes the prince of the world. And if we remember Daniel 4, chapter uh, 4, verse 17, it says what? It says, the sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decisions by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. God puts people in place for a reason. He allows the Antichrist to come and rise up. There's a purpose. There's a reason why. And we may not fully understand when, what time, the beginning, the end, the middle. We, don't, we may not completely understand that, but we trust that God is sovereign, that he's put them here for a reason, and it's to bring glory to his name. And so in the fewest words possible, Daniel speaks this at the end, and he says it is the destruction that has been divinely decreed that it comes to destruction, that one who makes desolate is suddenly destroyed, and it is over. So although there is much mystery to be found in Daniel chapter 9, there is much to be said about Daniel chapter 9. Three major sections. We see the prayer of Daniel. We see the answer from Daniel. And then we see the coming king. And in the prayer, there's four principles. That the word of God inspires us to pray. And that when we're inspired by the word of God, we're ushered into the presence of God. And as we sit in the presence of God and we pray the scriptures of God, our requests are rooted in his will and not our own. And then we have confession, right? We confess. We get honest and we confess our heart. And then God will give us an answer. It took Daniel 12 years to get an answer. Who knows how long it will take us. But we have to continue to pursue and be faithful to God knowing he's in control, knowing that he will give us an answer. Maybe not in the way that we want or understand, but he will give us an answer. And then the coming king, though it may seem like the Messiah, the king, lost, though it seemed like he was cut off from mankind, he wasn't. He arrived at just the right time, just the appointed time that was commanded of him. And so, church, there's an answer to this corrupt and sinful world. There's an answer. The dilemma has been solved and it's found in Christ. It's found in Christ Jesus. And Daniel didn't understand all of that at that time. But I promise you, he knows now. And so just at the right time, Jesus Christ, he laid down his life for the sins of the world and he satisfied the wrath of God. At just the right time, he will return for his children. Let me pray. Father, how we love you. And though at times scriptures seem difficult and hard to understand that we may not know all the answers, God, teach us to continue to be faithful to you. Teach us like Daniel that over 12 years he still prayed in confusion and not knowing and not understanding that he still sought your word. He still sought your presence. He confessed his sins and he made his request known for your will that you would be great in this land. 
Father, I pray that we learn from that. God, that our hearts are moved to your scriptures, that we lean on your word, not our own understanding, that we may live in such a way that brings glory and honor to your name and not our own, even when we hadn't found the answers yet. Let us be a people that are dedicated to praying your word and seeking your face. It's in your son's name we pray.